Our second scripture reading this morning picks up where Maureen left off with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. I'm also reading from the message, and you can continue in the Pew Bibles at page 148 of the New Testament section. Now God has us where God wants us, with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all God's idea and all God's work. All we do is trust God enough to let God do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. God creates us, creates each of us by Jesus Christ to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please pray with me. God of grace, open our hearts to the new word you would have us hear today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning's passage in Ephesians is basically a hymn, a jubilant celebration describing the before and after of the life of Christ. We've all seen before and after photos of people after they've lost weight or had a makeover or houses transformed by the Property Brothers on HGTV. Those, of course, are surfacey kind of changes, not the kind of interior human changes the writer is describing here in Ephesians. But those photos and the thrill with which the participants greet the improvements are really what's at work here. It's a new day. It's a new life. But if you hadn't seen the before photo, you wouldn't understand how amazing the transformation is. So the writer begins by describing the before situation. In Eugene Peterson's The Message, the passage begins, it wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. Now, I feel compelled to apologize to the L.A. Children's Chorus that the one day they show up here is the one day in 52 Sundays that I talk about sin. (laughs) Believe it or not, sin is actually a perfectly good word. The difference between a a poor moral decision and sin is that if we sin, then the values in question are not merely human values, but God's values. But that's the problem, isn't it? Who gets to decide what God's values are. Part of the reason we're so suspicious of the word sin is that it turns out to be that sin is whatever a particular group disapproves of. In the pre-Civil War South, a slave's rebellion against his master was a sin. This focus on individual sin has been used to manipulate people. And at the same time, it misses the reality that collective action, social systems, caused the greatest human suffering in our world. We've just finished a four-week study on race and white privilege here at First Presbyterian Church, and those of us who participated in it came, became freshly aware of the way that privilege and racism are built into the system, 
We learned, for example, example how banks redlined neighborhoods, refusing to lend money to anyone whose skin color or ethnic origin might lower the property value. We learned how the GI Bill excluded aid for people in certain occupations that just happened to be filled mostly by people of color. The way the message translates the first verse of this passage points to this systemic problem. Mired, stuck in a system, a system we didn't create and perhaps can't even see, but which we perpetuate as long as we're just letting the world tell us how to live. The system works inexorably to alienate us from God and from each other. But there's good news, says the writer. We have been embraced. We have been made alive and saved. In the Bible, save means rescue or heal. It emphatically does not automatically mean save from hell or give eternal life after death. The meaning varies from passage to passage, but in general, in any context, save means get out of trouble. The trouble could be sickness, war, political intrigue, oppression, poverty, imprisonment, or any kind of danger or evil. To say that God saves means that God intervenes to get us out of trouble. And this happens in many, many different ways. If we think about the Bible as simply a story of who God is and who we are, then this is the basic plot. God creates us for relationship with God and each other, and God always tries to find us, restore us, heal us, reconnect us, but we say, no thanks, we've got it covered. Left to ourselves, without God's intervention, we have a hard time staying out of trouble. In fact, left to ourselves, we are likely to destroy this planet and its residents. But God does not give up on us. God continues to intervene by opening our eyes to the sin, the brokenness, the disconnection, our need for healing, however you want to describe it. But that's only the beginning. Marcus Borg tells a story about giving a sermon as a guest preacher in a church. He talked about our need for open hearts in this sermon. And following the sermon, the pastor of the church prayed, Forgive us our, bro our closed hearts. Borg writes, I thought, well, okay, but that misses the point. If we have closed hearts, we don't need forgiveness as much as we need to have our hearts opened. And what the writer of Ephesians is saying is that Christ has shown us, and through his life, death, and resurrection, given us a new way. A way to have our hearts opened, our minds opened, our lives transformed. A way not only to forgiveness, which reconnects us with God, but to a new life. The life of connection with each other and God's creation that God plans for us. The writer is adamant and, and celebrates that we receive this new life not because we earned it, but because God loves us. And the word for this, as Diana said, is grace. And grace is not grace if there are any conditions attached and so there is nothing, including any set of doctrines or beliefs or good works, that wins this new life for us. The message puts it this way. All we do is trust God enough to let God do it. 
All we have to do is let God be God and trust God's way, which is the way of grace. Our good works are part of the plan, however. We are to join Christ in the work he does. The good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. And that means we are to join Christ in the way of grace. Grace is what God does. Grace is who God is. Grace is what God wants us to do as well. The old way, the world's way, the way of the system is graceless. Everything has to be earned. There's no such thing as a free lunch. We believe we have it covered, but what people do on their own is disconnect and vilify, shame and blame. In the news this past week, there were just any number of people to vilify, weren't there? So many situations inviting us to blame and feel superior to someone. Members of our own Congress wrote a letter undermining the negotiating authority of our president. Yet another unarmed 19-year-old African-American was shot and killed, this time by police in Madison. Protesters in Ferguson shot two police officers, and a bunch of Oklahoma University students were caught on video singing racist songs. In response to this video, the rest of the OU campus took to the streets to protest, and the college administration kicked all the students involved in the video and their whole fraternity off campus. Now, maybe this seems like at the least the university could do. But an African-American college professor, Maria Dixon Hall, offers a different perspective. She illustrates more dramatically than pretty much anything, anything I've run across before, the before and after of God's intervention that Ephesians describes, the deadening, disconnecting way of the world contrasted with the new life of grace. Dr. Hall says that these 18 to 21-year-old kids at OU are barely even adults. They are so programmed when they hit the college campus that it takes almost four years for them to start figuring out what kind of ice cream they really like. Sadly and often tragically, they find out that one bad night, one stupid decision, one wrong turn can lead to life-changing consequences. But, Dr. Hall writes, universities can step in, shine some light and hope on the situation, and offer an opportunity to begin anew. And that's why the situation at OU saddens her so deeply. Because rather than confronting, challenging, and teaching, a college community merely washed their hands and decided that the students were beyond redemption. They were quick to condemn, and the video was condemnable but they missed an opportunity to teach their students how to live, disagree, and unite as a civil community. Writes Hall, they perpetuated our society's Hunger Games philosophy of total annihilation. Blame them, shame them, and erase them. Hall writes that there were four teachable moments that the Oklahoma University and Sigma Alpha Epsilon missed. First, the level of outrage and self-righteous indignation that these racial slurs inspired was hypocritical. Dr. Hall reminds us that nearly everyone has, at one time, said something behind closed doors 
that would be vilified if it saw the light of day. That being the case, she says, how about if we cut these boys a little slack? Second, she says, children learn from what their parents don't say as well as from what they do say. White children learn the lessons of bigotry when their parents isolate them from those people. When the only people of color they encounter are those who serve their meals, clean their rooms, or carry their bags. When the churches only see people of color as objects of mission. Rather than pull the plug on them as hopeless, Hall writes, we ought to be giving them a defibrillator of God's grace and challenging them to see the sacred worth of all. Third, the best way to deal with a racist is to show them the dissonance in their own lives. What if the university invited the young men who sang that hateful song to sit and watch the YouTube video with the black people who fix their meals and clean their rooms at the fraternity house, and then allowed Walter, the man who has cooked their meals for the last 15 years, to ask them one simple question. Is this what you really think about me? Most racists hold their views in isolation. Hall believes that when these young men came face to face with the people who cared for them and loved them, the full impact of their behavior would then be clear. And finally, Hall writes, it's all about outcomes. Every teacher knows that every lesson has an outcome, whether intentional or not. So the question is, what do we want these young men to learn? If we wanted them to learn racism is bad, we missed it. Instead, they learned that racism must be hidden. They learned that you can be a racist, you can live as a racist, just make sure no one hears you say anything racist. And make for darn sure nobody gets you on YouTube. The university's reaction was great for public re relations. OU now looks like a bastion of civil rights. But have they really protected their students, students of color or any other students? Dr. Hall concludes, look, I know it's easier just to be done with these students. Bashing them is incredibly popular, and dismissing them from the island of humanity appears to be all the rage. Unfortunately, I am called to the two most idealistic professions, teaching and preaching. And I believe in the power of conversion. I believe in the power of grace. I believe in a God of second chances. I believe in a God who is a master teacher. I know. Silly of me. How would our lives look? What would our lives be like if we lived with this kind of grace? If we offered each other this kind of grace? What if Congress offered each other this kind of grace? What if Democrats and Republicans offered each other this kind of grace? What if people of different faiths offered each other this kind of grace? Dr. Hall doesn't say we should tolerate bad behavior, and I think that's key. She says, God can transform it. What would the world look like if we could extend each other this kind of grace? I'd say it would be saved. On the cover of your bulletins this morning is a sculpture by Andy Goldsworthy. 
an artful stack of stones that in Scotland is called a cairn, and in the hymn we're about to sing is called an Ebenezer. The word Ebenezer means stone of help in Hebrew. In the Old Testament, an Ebenezer is a stack of stones set to remind people that God was the source of a victory, the source of our help. The hymn we'll sing asks that God tune our hearts to sing God's grace. Tune our hearts to sing God's grace. The kind of grace that Maria Dixon Hall suggests, grace in the face of ugly or ignorant behavior, takes God's intervention. And it takes lots and lots of reminders. Here I raise my Ebenezer today, and here I raise it again tomorrow. Hither by thy help I've come, here I raise my Ebenezer so I will not forget. Our theme for Lent is daily resurrection. And to live this grace-filled life, we need to die to the blame and shame deadened world daily and allow God to resurrect us daily by God's grace. As we've done throughout Lent, this morning we're inviting you to take one of those little stones in the paper cups at the ends of the pews, ponder or pray about what person or situation in your life is calling you to live into God's grace, to offer grace where you might be intent or inclined to deny it. Then raise your own Ebenezer, or at least write an initial or a word or a sign on that little stone. Keep it this week or toss it into the Rock River and the landscaping in front of the church. Before and after, we can see the before in the world all around us. But God has brought us to this moment to tune our hearts to sing God's grace, to live gracefully connected to God and all people ever after. Here I raise my Ebenezer. May it be so for you and for me. Amen. Amen.